You can turn in your Bibles now to Acts chapter 24. We're working through that chapter as we're looking at uh, Paul's third defense he, out of six that he makes throughout this uh, book of Acts. From here to the end of the book of Acts chapter 28, he will stand, he's standing before Felix now as we started this uh, time that he spends with Felix and he'll go from there to Festus will take over the governance, and from there he will speak with Agrippa. So we're looking forward to these defenses as he gives them and makes his way to Rome. So Felix is a governor. He's considered not only a governor, but a procurator, which is that German, uh, German, which is that Roman official, rather, that has the sole prerogative to Uh, determine whether something warrants capital punishment or not, whether it warrants the death sentence. And so they're trying to honor what the Jews have uh, brought forth in terms of their accusations about the Apostle Paul to warrant the death penalty. They'd like him put him to death, but they had to submit themselves to the Roman government for that ultimate outcome. And so here we see the three charges that they've leveled against Paul, the sedition charge, which is to cause or stir up a a riot to uh, attack the government, Uh, the sectarianism, which that is they're referring to uh, those who believe in Christ, those Christians, uh, as a sect, which is a violation of Judaism to have any sects uh, so identified, Uh, and also the a sacrilege, a sacrilegious charge, uh, him defiling the temple. And any one of these charges, surely all of them put together, could warrant the death penalty. So this is what Paul is up against as we've uh, looked at this and started this last week. But Paul de- denies these out of hand. And we'll look at that in 24 as he's simply stating his case in more of an explanatory way, however brief albeit brief way, but he says it in one verse in the next chapter in 25, verse 80, he says, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. So he's denying these things, and we want to look at what his strategy is here. We want to look at a number of things as we are finishing up this section here of Uh, chapter 24. So what I'd like to do this morning is beginning in verse 1. Let's look together at verse 1 through 9 of Acts 24. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you, this is Felix, we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude, but to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. 
He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us to look carefully at this particular defense as we've looked at the others before it. Help us to understand what we're seeing here. Help us to mine out and avail ourselves of all of the important things that you would have for us to consider here this morning. We lay our hearts before you as we open up our ear gates to you. We open our eyes, as it were, to this event that happened in the life of the Apostle Paul. All of these have made their way into the permanent record, your eternal word, and so they're important to us. So, Lord, help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul, as all along we've looked at, has had a strategy given who he's talking to in making his defense. He's talked, of course, in chapter 22 to the, to the uh, crowd, the, Jew, the uh, Jewish crowd that was assembled there that tried to kill him, of course. In chapter 22, verse 1 to 21, he shares his personal testimony there. He makes a passionate appeal to them. He has a heart for the Jewish people. And even though they tried to kill him, he wants to make very clear what actually happened to him. He wants to make it clear that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, that he actually literally met with him on the Damascus Road, that he was very powerfully and very convincingly been converted and able to see Christ as Messiah. And so we he uh, unfolds that whole testimony in a, in a strong appeal to his fellow Jews. And then we see him change strategies in chapter 23, verse 1 to 10. He has this more casual appeal because the tribune, you'll remember, rescues him from the mob. He gives that impassioned personal testimony on the steps. He had asked for request from very respectfully from the tribune. He granted it. And so he made the appeal from there and the tribune ends up taking him in. And the next day he said, I, you know, in my own words, I need to find out what exactly they're charging you with. So the next morning he assembles, he has an informal, informal sort of impromptu assembling of The council, the Sanhedrin, has them come. And so they're assembled before him in a rather informal way at the Otonial uh, Fortress. And so Paul makes his next defense there in verse 1 to to 10. But his appeal there is more of a casual appeal that's addressing what he thinks are his friend's from the council. He perhaps even recognizes some of them. So his address to the council is much more informal and casual. Brothers, he says he, as he opens, and he gets struck in the mouth for the casual nature with which he does that because Ananias, the high priest, was present. And uh, you don't address the full council with the high priest in presence at the council in that casual way. So he's struck, but Paul's been gone for a long time. He perhaps doesn't even recognize who this man was. And so that's why he shouts out his insult toward Ananias, the high priest. When he recognizes that he is the high priest, he, of course, makes quick amends. 
And now there's a more formal in our text here. There's a more sort of formal but simple explanation. He's, he's, he seems to be done with his impassioned appeals like he was making to the Jewish people that he loved. He's now just giving them a simple explanation, basically saying they're wrong. They're wrong and it can be easily proven. I've only been in Jerusalem 12 days. How could I have done all of these things? Besides, where are the Asian Jews that accused me? Shouldn't they be here testifying? So he makes it very clear. So just so that you see, he has a different approach given his audience. And that's important for us to understand. We must consider, if we're wise, who our audience is, those we would share Christ, or giving a defense for the faith that we would do with gentleness and with respect. So we see that with Paul. So he's ingratiated himself with the tribune, the tribune, Uh, has respect for Paul, and you can see that. But in all three of these cases, including the one we have here today, none of these ended well. But he would eventually get to Rome because Christ said he would, if you remember in chapter 23 and verse 11. You must go to Rome. You're going to continue your work as a witness. And so therefore, as I said last week, he is literally immortal, if you will, until his witness is done. And so he has that type of confidence, that kind of composure that recognizes this is the call that Christ has given me. He is with me. Surely he said it. Surely he will do it. Surely it will get done. And so he's able to keep a clear head. He's able to be wise in his approach. He doesn't get all emotionally worked up by those opposers of his, those false accusers. Well, we have an interesting character here, don't we, in our text. In verse 2, this Tertullus. Now, this is is a man who is, Tertullus is obviously a Gentile name, looks very Roman, could be a Gentile or Roman converted Jew, or simply uh, one who is a Roman in citizenship, who the Jews have hired to make their case. They often did that. It was common that they did that because they, uh, they knew, first of all, that the Romans didn't care for them much and that the feeling was mutual. So they get one of their own guys. It was a common thing to get one of their own, one of their own people to make their defense. And so we can assume that that's probably what's going on. He knows the protocol He's very familiar with Roman jurisprudence. This is a lawyer. This is a lawyer, perhaps a Roman lawyer, and he's making the case. And so he really wants to ingratiate himself with Governor Felix, the procurator over this trial. And that's why we get this long opening statement Since through you we enjoy much peace, the only way that peace is achieved in Governor Felix's time is by crushing his opponents in a particularly vicious and brutal way. And since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, there's a whole lot wrong with that. Foresight, he's shown none in his tenure as governor. Most excellent Felix, this man was a tyrant. He was a tyrant as a former slave who, because his brother Pallas was close to Emperor Emperor Claudius, he was able to get this position. 
And so reforms were made for this nation. I mean, every bit of this is just um, made up. It's, it's fake. It is flattery meant to ingratiate himself with we have found this man a plague he goes on to say oh he says in verse 4 i beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly kindness every bit of this is a lie it's not true and for some that makes it okay for those clearly who go before these kind of authorities it's it's protocol it's what you do but it's insincere, at least, if not completely just fabricated uh, altogether. So I want to look this morning, as we're going through this, I want to contrast his opening line with Paul's, because I want us to understand the danger that there is. This is flattery as fawning fakery. It is a fool's false front. You like that? A lot of alliteration there. I challenge you. It is, though. The flattery is fawning fakery. He's fawning over him. He's, it's fake. It's not even real. You could, you could just push it over and see the, that it's just a facade. This is, this is a fake front. This is false, all of it. Jeremiah 5, 1 to 3. Listen to this. Run to, this, is, this is the Lord trying to salvage Jerusalem. But here's why he's found that impossible because of them. Here's what he says. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her squares and see if you can find a man. One, he says. Underline one. Who does justice and seeks truth that I may pardon her. Though they say, as the Lord lives, yet they swear falsely. O Lord, do not your eyes look for truth? You've struck them down, but they felt no anguish. You have consumed them, but they refuse to take correction. They've made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. This is a false use of flattery. This is a false use of the Lord's word. This feigned, that would be another F word to put in there, a feigned use of, or, or feigned uh, presentation of obedience or, uh, or faithfulness to God. Uh, Thus they saith the Lord. So they're speaking the words. They're speaking the words. But it's all fake. He's looking at their heart. The Lord looks at the heart and he knows that they're fakes because he knows what their lives are actually like. In chapter 7, verse 28 of Jeremiah, And you shall say to them, This is the nation that did not obey and the voice of the Lord their God and did not obey the voice of their God and did not accept discipline. Truth has perished. It is cut from their lips. Psalm 5, as was read this morning, verse 9 says, For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with the tongue. Flattery is, is not a good thing, as we, 
as we see from Scripture. And we're going to break down what flattery actually looks like, how it's used in ways that are actually reprehensible to the Lord. And we're going to look at things that may seem like flattery, but they're actually not. We're going to define the term. We're going to discover what this is because it is abominable to the Lord. He hates this kind of fakery, this false front, this fawning to get something from someone. In Job 32, 18 to 22, For I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery toward any person. For I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. That's how much he disapproves of it. Proverbs 29.5 says, A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. That's not only Tertullus, that's all of the Jews who ingratiate themselves with certain people in authority to get their own wicked desires. So flattery, what is it? Just by its strict definition, it's insincere praise. It's trying to please in order to win favor with someone. It's clearly what he's trying to do, to gratify the vanity of somebody. That's Tertullus to Felix. This is a, a vain man, and he's gratifying him, giving him honor that he does not deserve. Why? Here's my favorite definition, to beguile with artful blandishments. Isn't that great? Just write that down. To beguile with artful blandishments. That, that, that's going to remain my favorite so we need to understand, though, that, as I mentioned, this is proper Roman protocol and Roman jurisprudence. They had uh, capitatio benevolentiae, capitatio benevolentiae, which was ordinary uh, to accept. It means winning of goodwill. So they expected that in the Roman government. They expected that in the Roman judiciary. They expected somebody, okay, let's, let's, let's hear it from you. That's, that's what the protocol was. As one man wrote, a flattering appeal aimed at securing the goodwill of the governor. There it is. That's what he's looking for. And that's what he's doing. Now, we need to understand something. Encouraging somebody, giving someone encouragement is not flattery. As a matter of fact, it's commanded. We are to encourage one another as the day approaches. It's, it's important to help somebody to remain built up in the body of Christ because of how difficult this life is. So encouragement is not flattery. Flattery has an end, a selfish, a selfish goal, a selfish objective in mind. And so they're, they're, they're pouring out this, this flattery in order to win the favor of the person that is in a position to give them something they want. That's, that's the purpose. It's uh, also not, flattery is not showing someone in authority proper respect. And that's what Paul does. 
There's the difference. That's not flattery. That's, well, we saw what happened with the high priest Ananias when he didn't show the proper respect. He got punched in the mouth, literally. So he's showing proper respect. And when we see that, let's take a look at that for a minute. We see in verse 10 and following. Now here's Paul and listen to his introduction. Verse 10, and when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. That's it. 18 words in the English, in the ESV, over against the 45 words of Tertullus, dripping with, well, lies. So here's Paul going on then to make his defense. Verse 11. By the way, I I prefer the word gladly which would help it to read, and and that's one faithful rendering, one version has gladly in verse 10 in his opening, where it would read, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I gladly make my defense. I'm glad to be here. Why would he be glad to make his defense? He's glad to make his defense because he's what? He's right. These are lies. These are false accusations. I am glad To make this defense, I am glad that you've been a governor for these years and give us the opportunity to come before you because I really want to see what they have to say. Because actually, the original accusers aren't even here. So, if it stayed on that course, if it didn't take the turns providentially that God has it take, where he winds up going to Rome, and most of you know what that, how the story ends, this, they would have had to throw it out. They would have had to throw the whole case out. It, it had no legs to stand on. There's no veracity to their charges. So here's how he makes this. And I want you to see as we read this section down through verse 21, I want you to see as you keep in mind the way he addressed his fellow Jews on the steps over against how he addressed the council that he thought were friends and weren't and what he did to escape. Remember, he threw the, the bomb in the middle of the room and got a fight started between the Sadducees and the Pharisees over against how he now appeals to the Romans. So here he goes, verse 11. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written by the prophets. So look what he's saying there. As I said earlier, he's, he's, he's making it clear. You need to understand the timeline here, Governor Felix. I, I've only been here for 12 days. Three of them have been here in Caesarea with you. Okay, so nine days In nine days, I stirred up all of this trouble? No. So I didn't stir up a crowd anywhere, the temple, the synagogues, the city. Neither can they prove anything that they're bringing up against me now. But this I do confess to you, verse 14, that according to the way, which is that was the more standard address among Christians for Christianity, which they call a a sect. That's, That's what they're calling it. It's not a sect. That's why he says what he says right after. I worship the God of our fathers, the God of the Jewish fathers. 
I, work, I worship Yahweh, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. In other words, the whole, the entirety of our scriptures, I believe in it all. This is what it leads to because it bears witness to who the Christ is. You're the ones who are rejecting him. This is brilliant. He doesn't, he doesn't embellish. He's not, he doesn't have his passion, emotion flowing here. He's making it very clear for Felix. This is not a sect. This is Christianity. I have not departed from the law. I'm not against the law. I'm in favor of all that the scriptures have to say. All of them. I am a Jew to the core. A Jew who has recognized his Messiah has come. So what am I guilty of? This is a great defense. It doesn't need to be embellished, does it? Verse 15, Having hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection, I find this timely, of both the just and the unjust. And by the way, this is the only place in Scripture where Paul mentions resurrection, both including the just and the unjust. Very interesting. And what timing. Verse 16, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience. There he goes mentioning that again. Remember how important that is to Paul. Toward both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple. So what's their problem? We're fulfilling the vows of four Jewish men. Their Nazarite vows. I paid their way so they could do this. We, I was there to bring an offering on behalf of all the Gentile churches where I proclaimed the Messiah is here. His name is Christ. How did I defile the temple? They should have given me a spot on the rooftop to shout out, the king has come. He is here. He's moreover the Christ who you put to death. But he's alive. He's alive and he's ready to reconcile you for all of your sins. Simply believe. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. I wasn't in there with an entourage of rabble-rousers. I was there with the four Jewish men. There were no Gentiles there. But some Jews from Asia, remember, they were the, the troublemakers. They ought to be here before you. And to make an accusation, should they have anything against me, why are they not here? Isn't that how Roman jurisprudence works? Isn't that how your judicial process works? Where are my accusers? Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Okay? So if they're not here, the ones who are accusing me of what, you know, defiling the temple and the sedition, stirring up riots, well, okay, then let's go to the ones who were when I talked to the council. Remember what happened there? And he explains, verse 21, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, and again, I find this very timely here on Palm Sunday, It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. That is it. As far as the eyewitnesses that are assembled here to charge me are concerned, because that's all they witnessed. 
the Asian Jews, the ones who accused me of sedition and all the rest, they're not here. Sectarianism, that, that is a, that's, that's off the table. That's not true at all. I'm, I'm seeing fulfilled what the full wholeness of the scriptures had written about the Christ. So what do they say? What do they say? Let's look some more. Let's look at a warning about those who wear the wardrobe of religion and weaponize God's word. You know, in digging into the scriptures on this, I find how not only how abominable this is to God, the duplicity of flattery, uh, but how common it is today. Do you? Sadly. 2 Corinthians eleven twelve to 15. In what I do, I will continue to do because of the false apostles who were accusing him with lies as well. What I, will, what I do, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles. See this false front. Disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. This is a not a safe thing to do. This is serious. Using the faith, using the gospel, our evangel in a way that's false. Using the name of Christ. They're phonies. They're fakes. They may have scrubbed up their lives a little bit so that they can kind of look like the real thing. They may even have ingratiated themselves like Tertullus with the people. To be so likable, this is just implausible to me. I can't believe that these guys are bad guys. But there's a danger to this duplicity, as I said. There's a danger of duplicity that denies the dominance of deity. I was on a real alliteration kick. I mean, it, listen, it was, I could have done more, but I didn't. I'm sparing you. <laughs> like Jay Adams says, always avoid alliteration. If you think about it for a while, you'll get it. No, there's a duplicity there that denies the dominance of deity. It denies that the Christ is actually indwelling them because then they would not be duplicitous. Watch this. Psalm 12, 1 to 4. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of men. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips. And a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Nobody's able to convince like we are. We're very convincing. 
Why? We've made a serious investment with flattery. We've ingratiated ourselves. So people scratch their heads when somebody tries to point out and expose the false front and say, look behind, look, look at the, look at the fruit, look at this person behind the scenes. They're fake. They're a phony. And they're using our evangel. They're using our Christ for their own ends. Can it get any more abominable than that? A man without a heart is cold-blooded. A man with a double heart is duplicitous and dangerous. You know who you have in that case? Judas. Cozying up to Jesus during the Last Supper. Who knows the, the fawning? Who knows? Because he was all about greed. There was something that he wanted. Sir Walter Raleigh, not a theologian, but an English statesman and writer, wrote this. This is just too insightful to leave out. The flatterer is the most dangerous enemy we can have, according to him. I agree. A flatterer is said to be a beast that biteth smiling. Beware the smiling bite. They are so obsequious and full of protestations, for as a wolf resembles a dog, so doth a flatterer a friend. End quote. They're not your friend. As soon as somebody's pouring on the praise, start looking for a purpose, an intention. I don't deserve all this. Right? We do that with our kids. I was thinking about this. I thought, you know, when, when, when children come up to their parents, Mother, you look beautiful today. Okay, what do you want? Right? Dad, you really did a great job on the lawn. It looks awesome. Excellent. What do you want? Why don't we get that? When we possess the whole of knowledge and wisdom in the scriptures, we are to be the people of discernment. And we get fooled by fakes, by fawning flatterers. Jesus said it plainly, didn't he? In Matthew 7, verse 16. How are we going to know these false teachers, these false people? You will know them by what? Their fruit. Look at the sum total of their lives. But they make investments, and if, after they've made investments, then when they have to make a play, they can make it, and they leave the people that are, that are listening like baffled. How impressive Tertullus sounds when he makes his case. This is just who? Paul? He's on his own. He's by himself. Hmm. Psalm 50, verse 16 to 17. But the wicked to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline. You cast my words behind you. You can confront somebody like that with the direct word of God in all love and patience and humility, and they throw them behind their back. The only way that we can know of a certainty we belong to him is how we respond to his word. 
They just keep throwing it behind their back with their robes and their phylacteries on. They have a hard copy of Scripture attached to their foreheads and their wrists in their phylacteries. That's all the further it gets. It doesn't, through osmosis, make it through the mind and down into the heart. And you can tell by their fruit. I really appreciate what Spurgeon said here. So listen carefully. If moral formalists had been rebuked, how much more these immoral pretenders to fellowship? If the lack of heart spoiled the worship of the more decent and virtuous, how much more would violations of the law committed with a high hand corrupt the sacrifices of the wicked? This clever way that they have through their deceptions, that's the high-handed part. They're able to perpetrate this, and then they come and they bring their sacrifices in the church and ingratiate themselves with people. Oh, that we could see evil. I think it would be striking if we could see how ugly this really is. We would shake to the core. He goes on, Ye talk of being in covenant with me, and yet trample my holiness beneath your feet, as a swine tramples upon pearls. Think ye that I will brook this? Your mouths are full of lying and slander. And yet your mouth, you mouth my words as if they were fit morsels for such as you. How horrible and evil it is that to this day we see men explaining doctrines who despise precepts. Oh, they're on board with the doctrines. They'll go out there and they'll tell people about Christ, but try to confront them with a precept. See what happens. They make grace a covering for sin and even judge themselves to be sound in the faith while they are rotten in life. We need the grace of the doctrines as much as the doctrines of grace. And without it, an apostle is but a Judas and a fair-spoken professor is an utter enemy of the cross of Christ. And Christ, let's get to the good news, shall we? Let's get to an understanding of who we're supposed to be as a people in Christ. We are one body with, in one spirit, one heart, one word, one mind, one voice. We're united. That's why the prayer and the striving for unity is so utterly important. We collectively demonstrate Christ. We don't use any portion of our Christianity to ingratiate ourselves with people because we have selfish ends in mind. Ezekiel eleven nineteen to 21 And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules 
and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. This is how it's going to work, people, he is saying. I will take out that heart of stone that seeks your own way, that seeks to accomplish your own ends, and I will make you one in my spirit with your brothers and sisters collectively in Christ. And this, this is what will unite you. My word. It's what will ignite you. It's what will incite you. It's what will indict you if it needs to. He's at work. <laughs> Jeremiah thirty-two thirty-eight to 40. I will give them one heart and one way. The singularity, we talk about that a lot here. So important. The way of Christ is a single way. It's not only a narrow way, it's that too. But it's singular. The double-minded get off on and sidetrack you remember in uh bunyan's pilgrim's progress you remember there was a character and they were warned him and his companions christian and his companions avoid the flatterer avoid the flatterer and sure enough they were brought under his spell beguiled by many a clever blandishment and off the track they went Oh, for discernment. I agree with MacArthur. The church isn't perishing for liberal theology. The church is perishing for lack of what? Discernment. My people perish for lack of knowledge. It's the only way you're able to see these kinds of things. Because we're not God. We have to learn what God is saying so that we're able to see. There's something not right about this. They're walking the walk, they're claiming to love Jesus, and they're given the gospel, but there's something wrong here. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever, for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing them or doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. The reason this man is able to be successful in the church is because he has no fear of God. As Paul says in Romans 3, they sin because they have no fear of God. So when there was a call to Passover to join together in in uh, Jerusalem for the Passover, Second Chronicles 30, verse 12, the hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. It is the word of the Lord that unites us and gives us that one heart, a heart that's being transformed, praise the Lord, a heart that becomes the throne of Jesus Christ, a heart that's filled with the Spirit who illuminates this word and guides our way. That's not a New Testament principle. That is a, an Old Testament one as well. Zephaniah 3.9 For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. No more duplicity. No more deception. Right? Like silver refined in a furnace the gr- on the ground purified seven times. That was Paul's single defense as I mentioned last week when we talked about the importance of truth. The pure truth of what actually happened is his single-fold defense. The biblical truth 
of who it was he was proclaiming. The pure words of God as the pure one came as Messiah. That's his single defense. He's not trying to ingratiate himself with them. He's not, he's not ashamed of that. None of that with Paul. He simply is, I'm, I was struck by that. It's like he's just giving a straightforward refutation here. And then in 25, as I said, before Festus, it's one verse in verse 8 where he just says, not true, not true, not true. And he stood there. That's who I want to be. That's who I want you to be. Pure speech. that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. That's Zephaniah verse said. He's changing the speech of the people. So we all sing from the same sheet. And therein lies the only possibility for us to dwell unified in harmony. Psalm 12, verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words. John 17. This was part of Jesus' prayer too, remember, in verse 22 and 23. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, the disciples, and by extension all of us as Christians that they may be one even as we are one I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one this is high premium stuff this isn't just wouldn't it be nice if we all just got along gee that would be swell no this is like very important It's in the prayer of Jesus himself. This is just before he goes to the cross. Make them one. I and them, you and me, that we might all be one together. And and important in our context, because what does duplicity do? It divides. It pulls you apart. You know, well, I was talking to so-and-so and and he said such-and-such. There you go. You've given Satan the thin place to put the thin point of a wedge. It can happen in marriage too, can it? Start getting incrementally pulled away by some false front, some fake, some deceitful person who's trying to gain their own ends. When Acts 4.32 says those who believed as the church was growing were of one heart and soul. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 3 to 6 for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. That, that's what we speak in accord with. This is the thing that unifies all of our speech together. It unites us in our intentions. It unites us in terms of purpose. 
so we speak. And then he says this, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. See, there's no escaping it. If there's another ulterior motive there, he's looking right at it. We don't want to stand before him with that type of duplicity in our hearts. We can mask it from people, like I said, because there's, there's those who do it masterfully through the flattery. They've gained a lot of friends. That was one of the most difficult times in my ministry in another church at another time. When a man who was well-known, well-liked, I wouldn't say his name because some of you might recognize it, began, came in and began ingratiating himself with people in the church, behind the scenes, mind you, saying, here's how the pastor should be acting. It wasn't me. I wasn't the pastor there. Here's, he's not doing that. I mean, it's clear. And nobody knows Scripture better than Satan. Nobody. He used it against Jesus himself, didn't he? They got to the point where they were literally, he had, he had called together a number that he had uh, ingratiated himself with because this was so-and-so. He's such-and-such. And they got glassy-eyed. And then he came and tried to draw me in, and I thought, this is not right. What you're doing is wrong. Went and tried to tell the pastor, oh, no, no. That's so-and-so. He wouldn't do that. He's doing it. They've gotten to the point now in their meetings that they've rewritten your job description, literally. They've rewritten your job description. They're going to be telling you, this is who you must be. They didn't believe. It was some months later. I hung in there praying, just hoping for more opportunity. I went to him another time a few months later because I thought, well, make sure I'm right here. And sure enough, he's now leading the, the, the uh, elder training. He's teaching Sunday school. He's doing a number. He's just taken over. He's taken over. And uh, I went to talk to the pastor once more, and I said, look, here's what's going on. And he said, and his eyes got big. He said there were, there were just two men that were longstanding members, men of respect and trusted, uh, that he trusted, that had come, not colluding together to come, to tell him the same thing on their own separately. One the night before, one at noon that day, and then me. And he said, and he was, then he blew up. I mean, he was just so, so upset because he had been duped. He was going to, he was going to, if that's how they feel, I'm, I, I talked to him out in the parking lot. He was going to quit. Throwing his hands up in the air and saying, well, can, you can understand that, can't you? But that's not the right thing to do. But he's just blowing off steam. I said, don't do that. That's what they want. This man wants the pastorate. He wants this church. Don't you see that? We confronted him. And like a bolt of lightning, he left. We said, don't leave. Don't leave. We, want, we can help you with this. What you did is so very, very wrong. 
But there's the cross. You can repent of this. We can, we can help you. He's pastoring a church in another state now. First Thessalonians again. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please men, but to please God. You're not always going to please men. Some people are going to get rankled at the plain spoken preaching of the word of God. If it's doing its work, it's going to be convicting to them. Otherwise, the preacher isn't doing his job, is he? What are we here for? You know, when you preach that, that, that hurt my feelings. That if you, you were, and it was inappropriate how you did it because you directed that straight at me. And I find that as a conundrum I have difficulty answering. I said, well, are you part of the congregation? Yeah. Well, then I was talking to you. Probably some others too. That, that you remember when I was preaching on what do you do with conviction? That's the thing. When conviction comes, what are you going to do with it? Is the pride going to say, okay, he's, he's isolated me. He's, he's talking about me. Didn't you ever think that when you heard sermons? Pastor Mark, this is, he shouldn't do this. I have no idea, folks, who he's working on. <laughs> I'm not that clever. But he knows who he's working on. And he knows who the fakes are. Because they go. They leave. Not to please men, but to please God who tests our heart. For we never came with words of flattery. See, and people expect that. For Some people in some churches expect that from pastors, right? Have any of you? They expect the pastor to continually sort of bend the knee, if you will, sort of ingratiate himself and pour out, you know, complimentary words. And it's, it's look, I'm sorry, folks. You're stuck with me. What you see up here is me at home, so feel sorry for Barbara, if anybody. As you, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. God knows my heart. And I rest in that. Perfect man? Goodness, no. Always room for improvement? Well, of course. When sincere men pay you a compliment, that's a kindness. When insincere men, when deceitful men pay you a, a compliment, right? We have that expression, oh, they paid me a compliment. That payment was an investment. It was an investment in you. That's the deceitful man. Some people are kind enough to offer you a compliment. There's nothing wrong with that. We should do that. And some people, because they're confused, they, they sort of conflate flattery, which is deceptive, with encouragement or compliments. So they withhold all of that. They never encourage. They never compliment because they think that that's wrong in the flattery sense. And it's like, no, you're actually commanded to encourage one another. You actually owe people a compliment from time to time. You'll learn that in your marriage too. <laughs> if, you, if you didn't think you should do that. So they're ingratiating themselves with you to curry favor. That's what they're doing. 
for their own gain. Romans 16, 17 to 19. Got a couple more things to say here. A list and we're done. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. This is the doctrine, the doctrine of oneness, the doctrine of unity, to preserve the unity. Avoid them, he says. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and what? Flattery. They deceive the hearts of the naive. And they do. That's who they target. People are like, boy, he's a nice guy. I can't believe he caused that trouble. They're taken. A man named George Horn wrote this. They who take pleasure in deceiving others will at the last find themselves most of all deceived when the Son of Truth comes by the brightness of his rising shall at once detect and consume hypocrisy end quote i can't wait for that to be vaporized can you god has graciously given us a covenant of grace but when we hold on to our sin and continue without remorse or repentance we set aside that covenant of grace we are no longer part of that covenant of grace. We're duplicitous. We're two people, which is really one, a man of deception, outside the will of God. If we, when we sin, and when sin is brought to our attention in particular, if we resist or reject or rebel against it, then we're rejecting God's Offer, God's gracious offer of mercy, of forgiveness, of grace. Quick list so we can learn from Paul. Through his own faithful, steadfast, unshakable witness for Christ, the Apostle Paul shows us the way. Here's what we've seen. First of all, keep a clear conscience. Don't be duplicitous. Conviction comes over something God is addressing in you. Deal with it. Take it to the cross. Don't allow your pride to resist. Two, do not fear anyone but God. Don't fear man. What can man do to me? That's Paul. He stands there as bold as ever. I don't care that you've got this, you know, this suited lawyer here, this slick-talking, smooth flatterer. It doesn't make any difference. Because I've got one single weapon in my hand. Remember that? The truth. The Machaira. This is what actually happened. They're lying. Three, speak only what is true. Just speak the truth. Yeah, but if I say that part of the truth, it could indict me. Don't go there. Just speak the truth. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. Four, resist the temptation, therefore, to flatter those who stand, you stand to gain from. Resist that temptation. This person is important to what I'm trying to accomplish here. I'm just going to sort of you know, cozy up to them and just say nice things to them. That is wicked. That's, that's evil. Five, do what God says. If God speaks something from his word that convicts you, don't shoot the messenger. 
Don't pick up, and, uh, up stones. Don't cause trouble. Deal with it. Six, submit to authority. And here's the qualifier, whether fair and kind or mean and surly, we are called to submit to authority unless they're calling to do us to do something sinful. We are not right fighters. We are ev- evangelicals. We have good news to bring to both the right and the left because all of us need him. Finally, seven, don't give up. Paul is the very definition of perseverance, isn't he? I mean, we've been with him for quite a while. This is, in real time, this is over a period of years, like 10 years in total. All of his journeys, all of these trials, he's, and he continues. And he's human. We've seen him show his humanity, which gives me, me encouragement. But he continues on by God's grace. As Deuteronomy 32, verse 23 says, you have sinned against the Lord. Be sure your sin will find you out. So Paul rests in that breastplate of his own practical righteousness. I have done none of these things that are being said here. So I stand. I can do none else. May that be all of us here today. For it cost Christ his life to make it possible for us, didn't it? So we're looking at Palm Sunday, we're looking at the resurrection. Here Paul is. That's the only charge they have against me, is that I brought up the resurrection of the just and the unjust. Stay tuned for next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for my brothers and sisters here. I thank you, Lord, that they've helped me in terms of being instruments in your hands for my own growth. And with humility, we come before you and say, Lord, we do need, we do need help because we understand there are still, there's still work to be done. But it is Palm Sunday. You have made your glorious entry into the city. Those, that final day, Lord, when you will sacrifice your life on behalf of our sins. Pay the price so that we might have freedom. But there's an ethic to our gospel. We are called to live in a way that the scriptures call us, that in fact is following you. We thank you, Lord, for the resurrection and pray, O Lord, that we would live that resurrection out, particularly this week as we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.